Hear the word of God from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. These readings come from the Common English Bible and can be found on page 981 in the Pew Bible. From James. My brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers because we know that we teachers will be judged more strictly. We all make mistakes often, but those who don't make mistakes with their words have reached full maturity. Like a bridled horse, they can control themselves entirely. When we bridle horses and put bits in their mouths to lead them wherever we want, we can control their whole bodies. Consider ships. They are so large that strong winds are needed to drive them. But pilots direct their ships wherever they want with a little rudder. In the same way, even though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts wildly. Think about this. A small flame can set a whole forest on fire. The tongue is a small flame of fire, a world of evil at work in us. It contaminates our entire lives. Because of it, the circle of life is set on fire. The tongue itself is set on fire by the flames of hell. People can tame and already have tamed every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish. No one can tame the tongue, though. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we both bless the Lord and Father and curse human beings made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, it just shouldn't be this way. Both fresh water and salt water don't come from the same spring, do they? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree produce olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? Of course not. And fresh water doesn't flow from a salt water spring either. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. The most powerful muscle in your body is not in your legs or your arms or your back. On the surface, this muscle seems harmless enough. On average, it's just about 10 centimeters long, that's all it is. Just a, an encasement of mucous membrane covering a complex interconnection of muscle and nerves and tissue. It doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like the most powerful muscle. But if you ask James, it is ferociously strong. Just take a look at all of the wild images that James uses to describe the tongue in the third chapter. Your words can be like a bridle on a wild animal or a, or a rudder on a big ship or a small spark that sets a forest on fire or a deadly poison, one sip of which can cause death, 
or a toxic, foul mixture of salt and fresh, brackish water, unsuitable for life. You kind of get the sense that by the time James is finished with these 12 verses in the third chapter, he could have gone more, he could have gone longer. These images, these metaphors are vivid enough, but you kind of get the sense there are a lot more that he could have told. Sigmund Freud once said, words have a magical power. They can either bring the greatest happiness or the deepest despair. But when you really think about it, we realize that not only is the tongue powerful, it really is also weak. Because after all, the tongue is really just a servant. It's just a messenger. It just carries out the bidding of the heart. It has no real power on its own. It just does what it is directed to do by our heart. That's why Jesus said so many times to the Pharisees in the Gospels, that it's not about what you say, it's about what's in your heart. Matthew 15, he says to the Pharisees, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That is what defiles, Jesus said. He said, for out of the heart comes evil intentions and murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus goes on and on and on. The truth is, James wants to acknowledge this, that the tongue is the strongest and the weakest part of your body. The strongest and the weakest part of your body. So here's the hopeful and challenging word for us this morning. Yes, your speech is powerful, but it can also be controlled. Because if you control your heart, you can control your tongue. In other words, if you want to guard your big fat mouth, just have a big fat heart. The good news is that James gives us some practical advice, some readily applicable guidance on how to control our speech right here in the first 12 verses of the third chapter. If you take a look at each one of these very vivid metaphors, each one of them will give us a very practical way, a distinct way to guard our hearts and to channel our speech. So the very first metaphor, right off the top, is that James says that the tongue is like a bridle on a wild beast, on a big, on a wild horse. If any of you have ever owned or, or at least ridden a horse, you know that, that, that something even as small as a bridle can tame even the most ferocious impulses of the largest horse. And that's what James is saying to us. That deep down inside you and me, deep within all of us, is this bucking bronco of passion and impulse and, and emotion that's roaring to get out of us. And oftentimes those emotions are in the form of anger. I think when James talks about this image, he's talking about the problem of anger. Now, I said in the past, in, in prior sermons, that when we are angry, there are usually two root causes. Anger comes from fear and powerlessness. So in those moments when the bucking bronco of anger bubbles up within us, we ask ourselves the question, what is it that I'm afraid of in this moment, and why do I feel so powerless? 
That wild beast for you may be one of frustration at someone or something, at something that someone has done against you or at some injustice in the world. But you know as well as I do, we have all felt this. When those emotions bubble up within our hearts, it feels like a wild beast. And it is critical in those moments to channel that anger in a healthy way to control your heart and to watch what you say. Because all it takes is even just a momentary lapse of judgment to have something blurt out of your mouth that even unbeknownst to you in that moment will have long-lasting consequences on you, on someone you love, and on your relationships. You may not recognize it at the time, but what you say in that momentary lapse of judgment can have long-term impact. When I was about four years old, I remember my dad coming home from work one day, a long day at work. He looked tired and hungry, and so he sat down at his chair at the dinner table, and he started eating his supper. I had already finished my supper earlier before he came home, and, and I had all sorts of pent-up energy in my body, and so after dinner I was just working off a lot of excess energy by doing what I suppose most typical fourth graders, four-year-olds four do. I was just working off the energy. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was likely jumping and hooting and hollering and screaming and laughing and playing and, and horsing around. But I do remember what my dad said as he looked up from his plate and he locked eyes with mine and with a long face and anger he said to me McGray you're getting on my nerves that had a lasting impact on me to this day I can remember what he said and the way he looked when he said it. And I've never forgotten it. In that moment, I felt stunned. I felt shocked. Not just about what he said and the way he said it, but that realization that I had the capacity in me to do something that would elicit that kind of reaction in my dad. That was a profound moment of self-realization. I learned something about myself that day. I learned something about who my dad was in that moment. And, and I learned something about my relationship with my dad. Never forgotten it. So I, I asked him about this memory a few days ago. He doesn't remember ever saying it. <laughs> he doesn't deny it. He just doesn't remember it. We laughed about it after a while. I, I, I love my dad, and I'm, I'm glad I could have this conversation with him to share with him what we really feel about each other. It's a beautiful thing. And then I thought to myself afterwards, you know, if, if I have memories like that of a time when when my dad said something like that to me that I've never forgotten and it framed my life in that way, I, I began to wonder, I wonder if I have ever said anything like that to anyone that I love. So later that night, 
I asked both of my daughters. If there's ever been a moment in their brief lives that I've ever said something, maybe out of a singular moment of frustration or anger, that I've said something that they vividly remember to this day that I, I need to know about, that I've affected them in some profound way. So I, I said to my younger daughter, Maddie, I said, Maddie, was there ever a time like that? And without missing a beat, she said, oh yeah, there's been a moment like that. <laughs> I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, don't you need a minute to think about a memory? You know, maybe a couple hours to think about if there's been a moment? And that just started a whole wave of stories from both of them. Like a time in the movie theater. Maddie was only about eight years old. We were watching this wonderful film, and toward the last ten minutes of the movie, there was this really quiet, poignant moment of resolution and climax in the movie, and we're all watching the film, and Maddie was sitting right here to my right, fussing with the candy wrapper, and <laughs> digging her hand into the popcorn and munching real loud. And, and in that moment, I, I completely lost it. I said, I said with, a, with a very forceful and stern word, I said, would you be quiet? And she has never forgotten it. She learned something about herself that moment. She learned something about me at that moment. We, we learned something about our relationship. You and I have been both victims and perpetrators of that wild beast within us. All of us. We have had experiences of being wounded by words and whether we realize it or not, we have done the wounding too. And if you don't hear anything else from the book of James today, hear this. You can still make things right. You can still choose whether or not you will bridle that anger or let it unleash in momentary lapses of judgment. And if there's someone in your past for whom you, you can't forget what they've said to you, or if there's even a possibility that you have done that to someone else, hear this, it's not too late. It's not too late to make it right. The second metaphor that James gives is that of a giant ship that is controlled by the, the smallest rudder. This is a great metaphor. I, I like to interpret this one in the positive sense rather than the negative one of the prior metaphor. Your words, your words have the power to turn someone's day around. Even more, your words have the power to turn someone's life around. You can even turn someone's world around. Your words have the power of encouragement. Just your words can powerfully encourage someone and change their trajectory of their life forever. Let me, let me tell you another story about me and my dad. This, this one's one of my favorite memories. It happened back in 1995 the day I came home to my parents' house to tell them the news 
that God was calling me to be a minister instead of becoming a doctor like my parents wanted me to be. I came into their room late at night. My parents were asleep. I was very reluctant, based on prior experience, to wake my dad up. (laughs) But I had to. So I sat in the chair next to their bed and I said, Mom, Dad, I've I've got news to tell you. I I think God's calling me to be a preacher. I, I don't think I'm supposed to be a doctor. And my dad, he sat up and he said to me, That's good, son. I'm not surprised. And both my mom and my dad said in that moment, We are so proud of you. And they've been saying that for the better part of the last 30 years. That singular moment in time, just those simple words, changed the trajectory of my life. It confirmed what God was doing in my life through those simple words, that single act of encouragement. I I try to do my best. I, I I don't always succeed, but I always try to do my best to be an encourager of people, especially all of you, people that I love here. I do my best to be an encourager. And I have to say that when others encourage me, like many of you do so freely, when you send me words of encouragement, it's, it's like changing the course of the ship of my life, even just a fraction of a degree for that day, for that week, for an entire career. When we encourage each other, we, we bend the ship away from the rocks and from the the waterfalls and the icebergs that we're headed toward and we point our ship toward a bright horizon a future that is filled with hope and joy and you have the power to do that with even the simplest words of encouragement the next metaphor that James gives is about the tongue being a small spark that can set a whole forest on fire And when I think of that metaphor, I think of gossip. I think of gossip. But that's a really hard one for us for us Christians. You know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supposed to support one and one another and love each other and, and come alongside people when they're suffering and to bring in other people to assist and guide and love us through all of the toughest times. But it becomes a very fine line. And a very slippery slope when you and I start to share stories about other people without their knowing it, behind their backs, in a way that airs their dirty laundry out for other people to see. I'll never forget in in a Bible study that I was a part of many years ago, we talked about this in my small group about the power of gossip and how we find as many little shortcuts and convenient ways to get around the gossip in order to talk about other people. And one of our favorite ways we decided was to couch that gossip in the form of a prayer request. We are so good at doing this. We say to our our friends, oh, I, I need us to pray 
for for so and so because boy let me tell you what they're going through right now it's a fine line it is a slippery slippery slope so I wonder if there's a, a few practical guidelines that we could hear about how to differentiate between gossip on the one hand and genuine Christian concern on the other so I just want to give you three very simple ways that you might choose to prevent gossip but still love people. Number one, ask permission. Ask permission. It's as simple as that. It is always safest to ask the person if it's okay to share their concern with someone else and to let them know that they have the power to control who knows and who doesn't. That's a, that's a practice that all of your clergy try to apply whenever you share things with us that whenever you're going through a tough time and you share something with us, we do our best to ask you directly, is it okay to share this with the other clergy? Or would you like us to have the other people on the prayer team know about this? And if you say no, then you have decided, and we honor that the best we can. We want you to know that, uh, that asking permission is the simplest first step you can take. Here's the second principle. Don't triangulate. Don't triangulate. Which means that if you hear something about a conflict going on between two people, don't be the messenger between those two people. In, in, insist on having those conflicted parties talk to each other rather than talking through you. Don't let yourself be the one to tell the other person what the other person feels. It's just like passing notes in study hall in junior high. Don't do it. And if you happen to be in conflict with another person, go directly to that person. Don't put someone else, a third person, in the inconvenient and uncomfortable position of being your messenger. Don't triangulate. That's one of the best ways to inoculate against gossip. And third, this one's really simple, but it may be hard to apply. This one comes straight from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was the great German theologian and martyr who wrote a, a wonderful book called Life Together. And in that book, he simply says, Never speak of someone who is not present. Never speak of someone who is not present. And I know that there are going to be exceptions to that rule. You'll have to use your best judgment in love as to how to apply that rule. But the spirit of what he said is very sound. Gossip is a tough thing, and, and you, we need to do our best to avoid a lot of unnecessary flame-throwing with our gossip. Number four, the image of a deadly poison. James equates our tongues to deadly poisons, and here I like to think of the idea of the power of insults. The power of insults. In the past, we've had uh, our friend, the Reverend Gary Mason, come and preach from this very pulpit. Gary's one of the most incredible people I have ever met. He goes around the world to help people and nations who are at odds find peace with one another. He's worked with Arabs and Israelis. He worked with the Unionists and the Nationalists in Northern Ireland to bring an end to the, to the bloody 30 years war. He helped broker the Good Friday Agreement where those two warring factions were able to put their weapons down. 
And when he was in this pulpit, he once said to us, the moment the Good Friday Accord was signed between the Unionists and the Nationalists that put an end to the violence done with guns, but it did not put an end to the violence committed with the tongue. You and I well know we live in a world that is filled with acts of evil physical violence. But it is even more exponentially filled with violence that we commit with our speech to one another. It fills our social media platforms, our 24-hour news channels, our, our political discourses, the way we talk to each other and family members, co-workers and friends. Our words can be violent when they are filled with hatred and dehumanization. And that, according to James, is like a deadly poison. One sip of it can cause utter destruction. So the simple word of advice here is don't insult. Don't insult. You, you can engage people's ideas and their perspectives. You can talk about their, your differences of opinion, but do so with civility and openness. As Gary Mason has also said, engagement is not endorsement. I love that phrase. What he means by that is that when we talk to someone about ideas that to us seem antithetical to everything we believe, that, that might even be offensive to who we are, Engaging their ideas is not the same as endorsing their ideas. It means that we can have disagreements about opinions and perspectives while still looking them in the face and affirming their humanity and affirming that they are a child of God just like us. Don't insult. Put the deadly poison down. Well, here's the last image. This one may be the most important reminder of all. Your tongue is like brackish water filled with salt and fresh water in which you can offer both blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. It means that you have an amazing power, an amazing capacity to bring blessing to other people in a way that can turn their lives around, that can offer a word of encouragement, that can increase their capacity to love, that can seek forgiveness when you have wronged them or offer forgiveness when they have wronged you. It is the way of love. It is the fresh water that can come out of your mouth to bring life, hope, and possibility in someone else. But at the very same time, you have equal capacity to spew salt water. Toxic, foul destructive, harmful water through, through your resentment and anger, through your revenge, through the way that you grumble or complain, or the way that you might seek to destroy people with laser-like targeted insults, a way that speaks rather than listens. You have equal capacity to do both. And James says, you have a choice. You have a choice as to whether or not you will offer salt water or only offer the fresh water of God's love and grace for other people. Because the bottom line, once again, is that if you want to control your big fat mouth, 
It's a matter of having a big fat heart. You get to choose by the power of God's grace. So the last question on the insert may be the most important one of them all, and I can't tell you how to fill that one in. This one's entirely up to you and God. How will I seek to use my words to help and heal rather than to harm? In a few moments, we're going to be calling the ushers forward. We're going to be taking up an offering. It's the time where we offer our financial contributions and the work of our hands to the ministries of this church. But I I hope that you will use this offertory time to prayerfully think about how you will fill out that blank and ask for God's help and grace to help you apply that word today and the rest of the week and in your interactions with other people for the rest of your life. This is really important because you and I have the capacity to bring both blessings and curse on others. You and I have the power by God's grace to control our tongues and to offer our hearts. Let's pray together. God, this is a tough word that you have given to us in James today. It's it's tough because all of us struggle with it and all of us can do better. As, As you say to us in this chapter, none of us are perfect. We are all working towards perfection and love and we need you. We can only do this by your grace and your power. So for any of us this morning in the sanctuary or watching from afar who are struggling with controlling our speech. We ask your blessing upon us. May your spirit fill us with both the right insights and the critical opportunities to make things right in our relationships with others. We acknowledge that many of us have been hurt by others just as we confess the hurt that we have done. Thank you for the way of forgiveness and love. And thank you for your big fat heart that you have shared with us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so in response to God's word, we do invite you to prepare God's tithes, your gifts, your offerings, and prayerfully consider your application from today. As we, as, the, as we ask the ushers to come forward at this time.